0: For the book of Hebrews who is this seems to like always work because there, there really are two things that the book of Hebrews is trying to emphasize now remember the book of Hebrews is really a sermon that's been committed to writing so it's a sermon and a letter and you'll notice at various times as we go through it um, there's lots of um, language like listen and hear so it seems that it was first preached as a sermon and then committed to writing and the the real theme is Jesus is better than Jesus is superior but in particular there are two aspects to why he is better he's faithful and merciful he's a faithful and merciful high priest and that's what we're going to talk about tonight what does it mean for him to be a merciful high priest but faithful refers really to the fact that he has power to keep his promises Merciful is he can be touched with our infirmities and our weakness, and we need to understand that God has given us a merciful and faithful high priest, and if you remember, if you've been with us, the letter to the Hebrews is written to Christians in Rome who have begun to suffer persecution, and it's only going to get worse, and to stay the course It's imperative that they understand who Jesus is, the faithful and merciful high priest. And that's what that that hymn, Who is This, so weak and helpless, uh, brings out. Just this paradoxical reality that the one who is weak and helpless, child of lowly Hebrew maid, there was nothing special about Mary, rudely in a stable, sheltered, coldly in a manger, laid the bread of life, was born in a feeding trough. Right, that's what a manger is. It's not a crib, it's a feeding trough. But this one, it says, it's the hymn we just sang, "'Tis the Lord of all creation "'who this wondrous path has trod. "'He is Lord from everlasting and to everlasting God.'" Like, we could really just preach the four stanzas of this hymn. It's written by a guy named William Walsham Howe, who was known really as, as a bishop and an anglican priest who had a particular care and concern for the poor and the vulnerable and um, anyway he's got some other great hymns but i think this is really one of my favorites of his so we are like i said looking at hebrews chapter 4 and it's this idea that we have a great high priest but when you look at what it is that makes him great, it may actually not be what you would expect. Most people, when you think about what it is that makes somebody great, it's not the kinds of things that the book of Hebrews here in chapter four and into chapter five speaks about. And certainly wouldn't have been that way in the first century. I I hope you understand the two big barriers or really the big barrier for both the jews and for the romans and most of the gentiles to christianity to even considering that jesus might be something special was that he was crucified and how could you put your hope and trust in a one who was vanquished by the romans as a common criminal And particularly for the Jews, they knew what it said in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses had written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in the first century, the Jews interpreted crucifixion to be an example of that being cursed. Now, the Apostle Paul in Galatians, and you can can read this if you want, it's worth looking at, says, yes, Jesus was cursed by God. But the key is he was cursed for us in our place. So rather than thinking that the fact that he was crucified which showed him to be curse of God, rather that being the thing that disqualifies him, it actually qualifies him to be a savior like no other savior could be. See upside down nature of the kingdom. Things are upside down from what we understand power and strength to be. So let's see how we get into it here with Hebrews chapter 4. Start reading, follow me, at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, and this is a quote from the Psalms, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's actually a coronation psalm. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to talk more about Melchizedek because he comes up again in the letter of Hebrews. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have sent such a one to us, for us. But Lord, also thank you that you have laid out in your word what this means. We pray, Lord, now that you would send your Spirit to help us not only to understand, but to receive, to receive this comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This really is a a passage about, about comfort. Now, the book of Hebrews is practically the only New Testament book that deals with Jesus as high priest, now that doesn't mean that the other New Testament books like contradict it. It just fleshes out the picture in a bigger way, and it helps connect the dots between what Jesus, or sorry, what God had been revealing from the very beginning of His revealing up until now. You remember, if you were with us in the very first week, uh, the very first week, it talked about how God has spoken at various times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And so the point is, God has been speaking to his people from the very beginning. Everything began with a word, remember? Let it be, and it was. And mankind turned away from God's word when he said, don't eat. And they said, no, it looks pleasing to the eye and good for food, so we're going to substitute our judgment for your word in this case. And everything went Bad, But then God pursued Adam and Eve with a word. Where are you, Adam? And he continued to pursue his people with a word. Why will you die? Why will you turn from me? Over and over and over again. It's the story of the whole Bible. And the priesthood is something that God gave to God's people when he gave the law. And that's really important to know, that when he gave the law through Moses, it also included God, the sacrificial system that God had set up, so that his people would know that God is still committed to being reconciled to them, and he is going to provide a way, even when they break the law, break the covenant, commit spiritual adultery, go after other lovers, even when they do that there is still hope because god is going to pursue them and while the sacrificial system didn't fix the problem of sin it pointed to god's commitment to deal with it that's going to come up in the next couple chapters of hebrews but here at this point it's speaking about the priesthood and it's particularly talking about this aspect of the priesthood the priests were taken, appointed from among God's people. Why? What's the purpose of a priest? Do we need priests still? Well, the purpose of a priest, as this text says, is to represent the people before God. And and he is one who will stand before God and pray for them, ask God to bless them, And the priest can't even stand before God unless he makes sacrifice for his own sins. Now, some of you may not have read a lot of the Old Testament, but if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that this is a really big deal. As a matter of fact, the priest, uh, it said, we don't know if this is just kind of an apocryphal story or not, but I think it demonstrates the attitude of the, that the Jews had. It said that when the priest once a year, because he could only go once a year into the Holy of Holies, which represented coming before the very face of God, he could only do it once a year. And when he did it, it said that he had a rope around his feet so that if he was struck dead, that he could be pulled out. No one else would have to go in after him. You've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Right, It's a big deal to open that ark. The presence of God is a blessing or a curse depending on whether you are clean and holy before his very presence. So what the, the Old Testament priesthood is showing us is that there we do need someone to represent us. We can't stand before God on our own. If you remember when Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God, turned against him, basically allied themselves with his mortal enemy against God. God sent them out of the garden so that they wouldn't live forever in that state of rebellion, and he posted an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way back to God's presence. The point being, the only way that you can get back to the presence of God is someone needs to go under the sword. And it said that, in, in, that uh, embroidered on the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was a palm tree and a sword. Because the, the, the Holy of Holies, you know, the Garden of Eden is the garden because that's the presence of God and they can walk with him in the cool of the day. And, and the temple is representing getting back into that very tangible presence with God. That's why the the palm tree and the, the sword, right? So the priest is the one who represents God's people before God. And notice this, he never comes with empty hands, but he always brings sacrifices for the people. You can read about this in the book of Leviticus if you want. And you know what's interesting? you know the first book that Jewish children learn in Hebrew school? The book of Leviticus. Now, probably a lot of you have never even read the book of Leviticus, but there's an interesting point to be made from this. Understanding the holiness of God is foundational, but it's also something that we rather, well, we don't really think about it very much. We certainly don't think about it the way the Bible thinks about it. In a a lot of ways, you could say some of the problems people have with God today are because they don't start from the place of understanding and reckoning with the holiness of God. So, in the case of the Old Testament priests, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins, and then they would offer sacrifice for the people's sins. And what was the qualifications for a priest? Well, they had to be able to identify with those they represent. They must share the nature, share the weaknesses, share the infirmities, and actually be firsthand acquainted with suffering. The priests actually were also um, the doctors. The people who would, you would have to show yourself if you were to be judged as healed. You remember when Jesus healed a leper and he said to go show yourself to the priest because that's what you would have to do. So when the writer of Hebrews talks about the purpose of a high priest is to represent us before God and the qualifications for a high priest are they're able to identify with those he represents and this also, he's appointed to the role. Notice that he emphasizes that. No priest takes this upon himself. But you know what the irony was in Jesus' day? Is that the high priest actually had been bought and paid for. Kind of like the popes under the Medicis, right? Like this this family had basically bought and paid for the priesthood and installed their own priest. It's one of the reasons the Pharisees were so upset. Because they felt that the person in the priesthood wasn't a holy person who really had God's people as their calling. In, in, in Jesus' day, the high priesthood had been bought and paid for and had been corrupted into something like the papacy in the Middle Ages. And I just want to say something about this. Bad priests, church leaders who serve because of power or of the desire for power, are a really big deal. Right? And, and, and so damaging. And and Jesus understands this. Some of you have suffered grievously uh, from church leaders. I was talking to uh, somebody just the other day, um, a student who's considering coming to Belmont, and her mom had said, but she's really been burned by the church. And I was like, well, she probably will fit in because I would go around this room. I'd, I know a lot of stories of people that have been burned by the church and by abusive church leaders. But Jesus, Jesus understands. He was actually condemned and put to death under corrupt church leadership, right? He was. But even a good priest fails to live up to God's design. Jesus is the priest we really need. What's really fascinating, though, before the book of Hebrews, none of the Jewish writings speak about the weakness of the high priest. It's not a topic that you find addressed in the Old Testament. So the question that most Bible scholars reading this section of Hebrews is where did the writer of Hebrews get this idea? I think the the, the best answer is from considering who Jesus actually was you know sometimes you don't know what you need until you see who Jesus is I think sometimes we may tend to think that we know what's wrong and what we need and and we think that well I need this aspect of Jesus but I don't really like this aspect but knowing who Jesus is actually gives us a window into what we really need. And we need a merciful high priest. Jesus is the high priest, the preeminent high priest. And, and this is so important, he's our high priest. You see, what the priest offering sacrifices should have done was made them humble and tender. It should have. I mean, imagine being the person who has to offer up prayers. Oh, Lord, please forgive us for the ways that we have taken your love and your goods, your good gifts, and we prostituted ourselves before other lovers. That should make the person who's having to do that on behalf of the people tender and humble. There but for the grace of God go I. I it should have been an opportunity for the gospel to become real to the priests over and over and over again but instead what often happened and you see this often in the Old Testament is the priests were power hungry not humble they abused God's people and God takes matters into his own hand. I love this section in Isaiah where he talks about that and says, God said, I looked and I saw that there was no one. There was no one to bring justice. So I decided to work salvation with my own right hand. Jesus is the right hand of God who has come to make all things new. He is the one who says about himself, I am gentle and humble of heart. The only time he describes himself. And again, in the first century, if you've got the Romans occupying your country like the Jews did, you're not looking for a gentle and humble God. You know, humility is not actually even considered a virtue by the Romans. It's considered weakness. But Jesus comes and says, this is who I am, this is who you need. I'll just say this. I know some of you maybe think about whether you might be called to vocational full-time Christian ministry, and I would just say this. This passage should be a warning to all of us. Handling holy things like the Word of God without it being a constant reminder that you need the gospel more than anyone else is spiritually dangerous, And I think it's one of the reasons the Bible says not many of you should aspire to be teachers. That's different than being called into it. But actually, every one of us is called, 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9, to be priests to one another. That means... The more you know the gospel, the more it should humble you and make you tender and gentle. One of the greatest barriers to people being interested in understanding who Jesus is, is people who know all their theology, but it hasn't touched their heart and it hasn't humbled them. Those who have a a big view of God's grace should be the most humble people there are. Because if you understand the grace of God, it's not because you are smarter or better than anybody else. I love that line that Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher said. He said, faith is like an exotic plant that's not native to the soil of the human heart, and if you find it growing there, someone must have planted it. Or there's another great old preacher story about a turtle on a fence post. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you can be pretty sure it didn't get there by itself. Right? So, Jesus is the high priest, but Jesus is our high priest. Now, he's like the other priests in some ways, right? He was a real man. He was appointed by God, and he offered up prayers on behalf of God, but he is great, it says. Look at verse 14. We have a great high priest, and that that word actually is a very strong word. Great is actually a little bit too weak of a translation. It really means unique. Above and beyond anything else. But look at what it says is the reason he's great. Verse 15. You notice it's a double negative. I know we're not supposed to do that, right? And it almost makes it a little hard to follow. In the Greek, it's definitely a double negative. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. That means what? We have a high priest who can empathize. That's what makes him great. Now, most people would never think, if you think about, what are all the things that make Jesus great? They would think, well, he did this, and he conquered this, and he, you know, did No, he's able to empathize with our weakness because he too, because he too was one who suffered in every way like we did, yet without sin. And that's going to be important when we talk about what he did. But I just want to say this. Jesus' weakness, like I said, was a major barrier to the Jews. It was a major barrier to the Romans. It's still a scandal to Islam today. Do you know the Quran teaches that Jesus wasn't actually crucified? That, that actually God switched Jesus, the holy prophet, with some poor slob who was standing around watching and made everybody think that that guy was Jesus. Kind of blinded their eyes. Because the idea that God's holy prophet, who they regard Jesus to be, would be crucified is scandalous. I remember I once did a Welcor seminar on the doctrine of adoption, the idea that we are um, the adopted children of God. And I remember somebody asked at the end, what do other religions think about this idea? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know exactly. I think in the East, kind of Hinduism and and some of those things, like God is not a personal God in the same way, so you couldn't really have him as your father. And then a a Muslim student said, yeah, in Islam, we would never speak about God as our father. That's just way too familiar, right? So the, the idea of weakness is really unique to Christianity. It really is. Christianity says the weakness of Jesus, the fact that he was able to be put to death, is what makes him great. And that's what Hebrews says here. It's because of what he suffered that he is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Sorry, why do I have verse 10? That's not right. Um, Oh, it's verse 10 of of chapter 4. Yeah. No, it's not. I I just have the wrong thing here. Um, Where is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's verse 9. It's, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Right? Through his suffering. Literally, in the Greek, it says that that it was the cause. He is the cause of our salvation. Imagine a first-century Jew who... His all life, you know, kind of watched from a distance while the high priest went once a year into the Holy of Holies, and then you're told now that you can come boldly before the Holy Holies, and you won't die? Again, the high priest did this once a year, and everybody was on pins and needles wondering if it was actually going to work. But Jesus earns for us the right to come boldly before God, it is his death that is the cause of our salvation, right? Do you know what that means? That means that you don't have to agonize over whether you really 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 mean it when you pray Jesus into your heart or you don't have to agonize over did I get the words just right when I prayed that prayer you know I, I had that bondage for years and years you know because I felt like well, how do, how do I know that I really meant it? And then you can always kind of be manipulated into going forward again just to make extra sure that you rededicate your rededications. And, and the, the whole theology behind that whole system was basically this. What Jesus did plus my faith equals salvation. But you know, the problem is my faith is a variable. Now, I didn't study much math you know, because I went to Berkeley College of Music. I actually tested out of math, and then, uh, then uh, but I think, um, you know, I know this. If there's a variable on one side of the equals, then there's a variable on the other. So if, if, the, if the gospel equation is what Jesus did plus my faith equals salvation, and I'm a variable, some days I believe it, some days I really am not sure what I think. Then what do you think about my salvation? It's kind of going up and down. And so many people live in that kind of bondage but the actual equation is Jesus work is the cause of our salvation and your faith is the fruit of what he's done that changes you now that may seem like strong we can talk about that over coffee if you want but it completely changes the possibility of being secure in the love of God and that is what God wants for his people. We'll see when we get to chapter six. Um, Jesus is our high priest. So let's gaze on our high priest with the remaining time we have. Let's consider the magnitude of his task. Look at verse seven. This is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. Chapter five, verse seven. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries. Some translations say loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Have you ever read the story about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's going to go to the cross? Why do we see him so overwhelmed that the Bible says his sweat was like great drops of blood pouring out? The scriptures say he was sorrowful to the point of death as he wrestles with God about the cross. Why? If you recall the rest of the story, when they beat him, and they put the crown of thorns on his head, whip his back, he never cries out. What is the thing that makes him cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote of Psalm 22. What made him shrink back in the garden, what made him cry out was not the physical torture, is that he knew he was going to experience the full weight of the curse of God. I once had a student ask me, like, what in the world do I do with Leviticus 26? Do you know what Leviticus 26 talks about? talks about the curses of the covenant. I won't even read all of it, but I just can read a few verses. They're like, what in the world is this? If you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. You will even flee when there is no one pursuing you. And you're like, what in the world is that? Do you know what that is? That's actually details about what Jesus suffered at the cross because Jesus suffered the curse of the covenant. And lest you think, just in general terms, oh, I guess that was really bad, it's worth reading, actually, Leviticus 26. Because that's what he shrank back from. To know that God would set his face against him. And he said, nevertheless, even though I don't want to do it, If there's any way, God, let this pass for me, yet nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because for his whole life, he said it was his meat and drink to do the will of his father, and this was the will of his father, and he embraced it. Why? Because of his love for us, right? I think sometimes we're just content with just a general idea that Jesus suffered on a cross and we don't really think much about what that means but if we do think about it we think about the nails going through his hands and that seems awful though that detail is actually not even in the New Testament Do you know that it's in the Old Testament that it talks about the nails piercing him Psalm 22 Isaiah 53 the the New Testament is actually very reticent to talk about the physical suffering lest you think that that was the main torment that he endured. It wasn't. So, Jesus suffered on the cross. And if you want, again, to know more of the full depth of what Jesus suffered on the cross and what his love cost him, read about the curses of the covenant. And remember this, Jesus did not pray to God to be delivered from dying. He prayed for God to sustain him in the temptations that the suffering would bring. Luke 22, 43 talks about this and said that God answered that prayer and sent an angel to strengthen him in the garden. But God did not, did not take away The death that was coming. And Jesus did not resort to his divine nature to endure the cross when he had the opportunity to. And he even made it clear. He says, I could lift one finger and call down legions of angels and this would all be over. He's giving expression to the temptation that he himself was feeling. You know he had to be tempted to do that. But he didn't do it. Why? Because he was earning salvation. Just as the high priests in Israel never would enter before the the throne of God empty-handed, so Jesus doesn't empty-handed. Jesus earned salvation. Do you know it's true to say that you are saved by works? If anybody tells you that you're not saved by works, that's a lie from the pit of hell. You're saved by works. They're just not your works. But Jesus earned salvation by his reverent submission even to the point of torturous death because somebody had to go under the sword and take the curses of the covenant that were justified for the audacity that we would spit in God's face for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And Jesus said, I will take it, right? This can actually teach us, I think, how to pray for others. Think about this. If Christ prayed because he feared shrinking back from death at the moment of trial, then how much more should we pray for ourselves and for our friends that they would endure trials faithfully? It's not inappropriate to pray that God would deliver, but sometimes God has ordained suffering as the way that people grow. I remember once in seminary, there was a beloved church history professor, Dr. David Calhoun, who had cancer, gosh, I feel like 25 years. Because he had cancer when I got there in 92, and he was regularly having to go walk across the street to the hospital across from the seminary in St. Louis and get chemo. And, um, and he only died just a couple years ago, right? And I remember one time after he preached at chapel, and we all kind of went downstairs in the basement of the chapel to this class, a guy named Dr. Yarbrough, who's still there at Covenant Seminary, by the way, in St. Louis, he said, you know, we all admire the faith of Dr. Calhoun, but not a one of us, not a one of us would choose to take what it's caught, what it's required for that faith to be forged. Now, God has different paths for different people. But one of the things that the letter of the Hebrews is saying is suffering is one of God's greatest tools to build character. It was that for Jesus. Isn't that a mind-blowing thought? Jesus actually grew in obedience because the closer he got to the cross, the more difficult it got. You think about how long, the longest time you've ever resisted sin. You know, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe a couple days, maybe a week. Jesus resisted 33 years, and it got more difficult, more intense the closer he got to the cross. And he suffered his whole life as our priest. This is is a mind-blowing thing. It's talking here in verse seven. These strong cries are not just the garden. It's talking about his whole life. He was earning our salvation through his reverent submission. He suffered from the moment of birth, and it got worse and worse. The closer he got to the cross bb warfield great professor from princeton seminary wrote an incredible piece called on the emotional life of our lord where he basically studies the emotional life of jesus in the gospels and he contends that christ was suffering for us his whole life why else would he need to be circumcised he had no need to undergo a cleansing ritual at eight days old he did it for his people to identify with them. His innocent flesh had no need to be cut except he was identifying with his people. Why did he live in poverty when he deserved the richest splendor? Everything he did was suffering for his people, right? Christ offered himself, and here's the other thing. At the cross, he was not merely a passive victim. He was actively working, earning salvation by refusing to call down legions of angels and get down off that cross. This is, this is mind-blowing. A.W. Pink, who's a great, great writer, um, quoting an older writer, Hugh Martin. Listen to this. He says, Christ on the cross was far more than a willing victim passively enduring the stroke of divine judgment. He was there performing a work, nor did he cease until he cried in triumph, it is finished, He loved the church and gave himself for it. He laid down his life for his sheep. He poured out his soul unto death. He gave up his spirit. Hell's utmost force and fury gathered against him. Heaven's sword devouring him and heaven's God forsaking him. Earth and hell and heaven, thus in conspiring action against him unto the uttermost of heaven's extremest justice and earth and hell's extremest injustice. What is the glory of the cross if it not be this, that with all that action conspiring to subdue his action, his action outlasted and outlived them all. And he did not die subdued and overborn in the dying. He did not die till he gave himself in death. As he said, no one takes my life from me. All heaven and earth conspiring against him, and his work outlasted their work. And he cries triumphantly, it is finished. Oh, Christ offers something to God. He does not come with empty hands, and that is our security. That's why we can come boldly before the throne of God. Don't ever let the devil tell you that you have no right to speak to God and to look up. You know, it's why in the benediction, We encourage people not to look down, it's not a prayer, but to look up. The minister represents God speaking his word and we look up. Just as when Aaron gave the benediction, his face shone upon them, right? In in the Anglican prayer book, there's a great line where it says, it talks about, um, uh, about our sins and it says, then therefore we are bold to pray. Do you ever think about how bold it is to pray? I, do you just take it for granted that God will hear you when you pray? You should never take it for granted. You should remember what it cost Jesus for you to be able to come boldly before the throne of God and know that God would listen to you and not turn you out. And when you struggle to believe that you have access, do battle against that unbelief by remembering that Jesus earned, did his greatest work at the cross, and it was work. He wasn't just a passive victim. Therefore, We have a merciful and faithful high priest, and we can come boldly before the throne of God. We have access. We get in. And that's awesome. Let's pray.